Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I got to work with him when he was a little bit younger, and he went on to bigger and better things, but he was a member of Canada's number one beach crew of the OVA Beach Tour. He is a two-time offset champion. He is a four-time national champion, a four-time provincial champion. He was a Canadian all-star twice at nationals. He played his university at the University of Toronto for five years, where he was the team captain for four of those seasons. Can't wait to get into some stories. Please welcome to the show, Michael Denton. Denton, thanks for doing this, man. Oh, thanks for having me, Josh. Looking forward to it. So people who knew you when you were growing up, they would say, well, well, one, your sister is a heck of a baseball player, but you were too. So I'm wondering what made you switch and choose volleyball as your sport or, or what other sports were you playing when you grew up and then made volleyball your main one? Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Growing up, it was baseball and, and hockey. And... Um, Hockey at a certain time frame, you know, you kind of have to make a commitment, uh, both time and financially, if that's the route you're going to go. And I think in Canada, especially that age has started to become younger and younger. It's pretty remarkable where you're 10 years old, trying to make a decision of what you're going to commit to for the rest of your sporting career. And, and both of those sports became, you know, a little more politically minded, I think at a young age. And there were certain teams that you had to get yourself on if you wanted to play at the highest level at a really young age. And I started picking up volleyball when I was 12, uh, which is fairly young playing club with crush volleyball club at 12. And that's where all of my best friends ended up being growing up. And I just learned to love it. So I, I actually started to lose my focus, started to lose the passion I had for baseball and hockey just because it just became uh, more of a game about kids trying to get somewhere else. And it was uh, something that volleyball for me was just so fun. I would also say that, you know, at 12, 13, 14, there's so much potential to improve in volleyball. So I found it very, very motivating at that age to make a commitment to volleyball because I was getting better so rapidly. And were you part of the, the first generation of Crush? Like, I, I think a bunch of you guys went to the same public school, like you said. So was your team the very first one, or did you join after they maybe had one year? Yeah, I was, uh, I was part of the original. At that time, we called ourselves Birchcliff Crush or Scarborough Crush Volleyball. Um, and we were playing out of my public school in, in Scarborough, Ontario, in a gym that, oh, man, we must have had 15-foot ceilings. So uh, when people think about where things started at that point, you know, there was probably seven of us who carried through from that time frame. But when people think about crush volleyball, I think a lot of them look at sort of the ball, ball control that we had to develop, but a lot of it stemmed from our practices, but I, I would say a lot of it stemmed from playing in, in the absolute smallest gym that you could find trying to keep the ball away from the ceiling was a, was a task in itself. But yeah, I was part of that first, the first wave. Nice. And we recently had John May on the show, and I'm interested to hear this from a player perspective where he, he's a big storyteller and he wanted to tell the story that I think everybody in your age group agreed that that, that team from London, that Forest City team, they were very good. But John and Aaron, whoever else was coaching, wanted to build that story that if we get an opportunity, we're going to take these guys down and we're going to be ready. So I'm wondering, as an athlete, how are you hearing that message? Like when you're playing at the first couple tournaments, was that team just heads and above everybody else? Like I heard they were just bigger at that age group and little things like that, right? So from your standpoint, what did you think of the OVA circuit at that time? And, and I guess how legit was this Forest City team? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought the OVA was decently strong at that time. I think 
I think nowadays, now that I'm involved with some recruiting with the University of Toronto, I think the younger ages are uh, far and away getting better and better. But at that time, the league was fairly strong and our class coming out eventually was very, very strong who ended up coming to the OUA. But uh, that team, that four city team was massive at that time. We, our team was so small. Uh, you know, our, our largest athlete at the time was, was Josh Taylor and, and Garrett who were maybe pushing five eleven or six feet and four city. It's like, they just had hit puberty a lot earlier than us. And, <laughs> And um, so we were getting dominated in a couple of tournaments and we consistently come second, but we just couldn't break through. And uh, I did listen to the podcast with John May, which was one of my favorite. It brought up a lot of, a lot of great memories. And, and John is, I'll call him sort of the Yoda of volleyball, speaking things into existence uh, and speaking things until they become a uh, reality. And that's sort of the, the belief that he instilled in us at a young age um, that we would get an opportunity and, and when it happened, you know, we would capitalize on it. And um, that, that final match, I know it was 14U uh, provincial championship, but that final match winning 23-21, yeah, you know, and carrying that belief and what that meant and how it happened and how we won is something that we've all carried with us since that time. And even if you talk to Garrett May, who's had you know tremendous success at the university level and at the international level with beach volleyball, it's those moments at the youngest ages, specifically that 14U Provincial Championship, that's something that's carried with him. Uh, and, and then again, with our crush team moving forward. Now, do you remember, was everybody all in or was there any pessimistic views on the team being like, John, we haven't beat them all year. Like we're, we're just not going to get it done. We're not good enough. Or would he just, I don't know, during the introduction of practice, like would he just preach like, you know, when we're peppering today, guys, we got to be ready because we're going to win provincials. Like we got to focus, we got to dial in. Like how was the message delivered and how did everybody kind of connect to it? Uh, you know, I think we always had a great uh, energy in our team because we're really, we were all friends first. I mean, the guys from that original crush team have all been my best friends. I was just at a wedding with, you know, four or five of them there. We stayed in very, very close in touch. Uh, the practices for us with John and Aaron Kiddo, who was helping at the time. I mean, they kept us very honest with our level of focus, even at that young age, being about 13 years old. And when we would go through the motions, as Aaron and John would say, uh, we would stop. We would completely stop practice. We would be on the end lines. Um, we didn't run lines as punishment, but it became almost a a session uh, for John May to go through our goals. And it was those quiet moments in the gym where uh, we all would reiterate why we're here, what's going to happen, how is it going to happen when we get there, how is it going to feel, and it was almost a sense of forced visualization at, at such a young sporting age that he took us through. So there was never any, you know, raw, raw moment during these practices where we felt like this is the event. We're going to get them. We're going to turn it up and we're going to, you know, beat these guys. Uh, that just wasn't our group. We just believed in each other and, and we came to work every day to focus. And how did that develop over the years? Like you said, that, that big win moment winning 23-21, that, that's confirmation and everybody's there. But 
did the message evolve over the years? Because I think, as you mentioned, like your, your team wasn't the biggest team. And I think if Dallas were here, our, <laughs> one of our co-creators, he used to refute across his like Garrett and friends, right? So not a lot of you got a ton of respect where if you go up and down that roster, though, I think everybody who was on your HNU team did play post-secondary. So it wasn't just Garrett, but I, I think he got the attention, right? But how did the, the messaging evolve or how did the team evolve? Because you guys continued to get it done year after year. Uh, I'm wondering, did John mention the pillars on our show? Was there anything else that went into it from your standpoint? Right. Um, I mean, Garrett and Coates, that's funny. I, I, it's not the first time I've heard it. That definitely Garrett deserves his praises. He was an absolute monster and still is right now. I know he's not playing anymore, but if he ever joins us and we get a session and down at the beach, I mean, he shows up, hasn't touched a weight, hasn't spun a cycle or anything. And he still dominates us to this day. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, at that, at that time, I'm sorry, I, I kind of lost track of your question. There, John. Sorry, I was rambling. So I was so excited. I was wondering, uh, with John preaching and doing his Yoda thing, like you said, and building this into action as you went from like 15, U, 16, U, 17, U, and finally 18, U, did the message ever change or was it always about like the belief and focus and really going for those like external outcomes of like winning nationals, winning provincials and things like that? Yeah. You know what? John was very big into, um, having an end goal focus. And I think it's a different philosophy than a lot of coaches I've played with. You know, some coaches are almost afraid to talk about the big picture or the big goal. Um, you know, very focused on the next point, the next play, the next match, which is very important, but I think there is some power and weight behind speaking about the results that you want to have happen. And that's what John always did to us. Um, whether it was a tournament where we were playing an age group up or a, a regional qualification tournament with uh, less talented teams, there was always a bigger picture involved. And John would uh, use practices and use moments in matches to test us. So in practices, he would change the score when one team was winning. He would change the drill up in the middle. He would poke and prod and push us. And he would ask us questions in the middle of the drill uh, just to get our mind thinking. Um, and I think the strength of that group when we talk about you know, Garrett and company was, I think, first and foremost, we were all best friends. We went to these tournaments and, and we just had a blast. I mean, those were the best days of our lives was going to the tournament, hanging out with your buddies, uh, you know, playing too much in between matches, but then somehow <laughs> still having enough energy, uh, you know, showing up to the gym five minutes before no warm up, and just going in and trying to crush balls. Uh, <laughs> what a time. But I, I would say the biggest thing that separated us from other groups was we were all best friends and, we believed in each other and it didn't matter at any point in any match we've ever played. And people always ask, you know, how would you compare to the younger crush team, a much more talented group individually? And obviously the age gap is different. So we were never able to play them. We, we actually played them when we were 18 U and they would have been 15, 16 U that kind of split and we beat them. But at that point, the age gap is so different. But there was no team in the country and there was no team in North America when we would go down south that I, would, I wouldn't choose us just because we knew what was going to happen when we got tight, when we got into the tense, the late match moments, when it really mattered, plus 20, I knew that I could rely on the guy beside me. And that was the difference between other teams that would 
get tight and for lack of better words, kind of fold up when, uh, when things got late in the sets and that just wasn't our group. I think John talked a lot about the four pillars, passing, serving, focus and awareness, which has carried through with all of us. Just another one of John's great mantras, but uh, it's so true, you know, passing and serving, controlling the first contacts is a massive part of the game at any level. And the thing with volleyball and something that I've been learning more and more as I get involved in coaching and coaching under the direction of John Barrett at the University of Toronto is you can never practice the simple skills enough. You can never get too good at the small ball control. And the elite of the elite, the Olympians are doing the same drills day in and day out. And I have the privilege of coaching at a very successful university program right now. We have some great athletes. And even still, doing simple drills, simple passing, simple high ball setting, ball control drills, you can still see people struggle. And John May, during the crush uh, era, was committed to honing in on those simple drill tasks. And our group was very, very focused on them. And I think part of that is why we translated into what we were known for at the time, which was a ball control team, because we weren't physical at all, really. Yeah, just to circle back to one of your earlier points, is there an example you're comfortable sharing about how he may have poked or prodded or tried to get a rise out of you? Because I'm thinking as a setter, you have an important role in a lot of the drills. So was there anything going on that like if he would change the score, would that get you upset? Or was there any like heated moments in practice that you would like give us as an example? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you you won't find very, <laughs> I mean, you won't find uh, many more competitive people than myself, especially, you know, at a young age, I was uh, quite animated during these types of practices. Uh, I hated to lose. And I would always, I feel like as a setter, you'd always find a way to win the drills. I think that's the, the thing that people and athletes at a younger age coming to university uh, can do a better job at, which is every drill you're in, every practice, your goal and your main purpose should be winning the drill. Sometimes you may sacrifice some of your individual skills, but the effort that you put forward with the team as the goal to win. And that's what I would try to do every day. And we'd be battling with my best friends and to have John may, you know, change or, or basically force my hand and my set selection for certain situations uh, to put hitters in a difficult spot. So whether we're playing a wash drill where, you know, I have to set the left side out of transition so that he's hitting against a double or triple block or things like that. I didn't like it uh, because I knew that it was a disadvantage to what my skill set was, which was trying to find the attacker with the best option uh, in the best scenario. So sure. John and I would, uh, butt heads. I mean, in the drill, I would, I wouldn't say anything and I would go on and I just try to win. And then after the drill, I would at times express how he made me feel, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I knew that I knew at the end and I definitely realize it now that he was just trying to provoke us and put us in situations that made us feel uncomfortable. So I guess I can thank him for it now. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question was, is that how you guys created this, 
this belief, this clutch that you could, you know, finish it up. You could be the best team after 20. Was it those moments in practice that gave you like the actual action in place? Or was there just constant reminders if you guys won like a third set or a tough set that went into extras? Like, would you just get the reminder of how clutch you were? Or how did that mood get built that you guys could always close up? It's hard to say. Um, I mean, I think... Yes, you're going to practice those types of scenarios and drills and things that John could have done to manipulate the games we were playing that would instill that belief. But to be honest with you, there were a lot of situations that in our favor, not that we didn't put the effort and we weren't putting ourselves in those scenarios to be successful, which is what you have to do first and foremost, but you get yourself in tight third set or fifth set matches and you find a way and you find a way to grind it out. And, and when you get there again, you you're reminded of what it took and how you did it last time. And we were really fortunate that we, um, we just came on top a lot. And once you build that behind you, you know, there, there's not much doubt that no matter what you're going to be on top when, when the set ends. And just a, a quick little segue to your high school career. So obviously being a two time officer champion, I think in your era, most of the crush guys were Birchmount guys, where I don't think you could say that for maybe Reed May's era, but for yours, I think the majority was there. So I'm wondering, how did uh, Coach Bill McKay kind of inherit this crush team? Like, I don't think he tried to blow it up or change it or make it his own. I think he really let you guys play your style, right? But how did he still have his coaching presence? Because obviously a very good volleyball mind. I'm just wondering, how was crush behaving without John May at the helm? Yeah, Bill was actually a really good volleyball mind and, and spent a lot of time coaching with the Scarborough Titans women's program and actually coached uh, Jennifer Cross at a young age. Uh, and they were very successful as well. You know, Bill did a good job of kind of playing with our strengths as a group. So he didn't rock the boat too much as far as what we were doing in practice. He was really cognizant of uh, the level of training. I think there's some high school programs that practice a lot. Our high school program practice maybe twice a week, um, but we were practicing, you know, a, a large majority of us together playing club outside. So I think he did a good job of, of creating that balance. And then when we got into matches, I think Bill did a great job just staying calm and composed. Um, we had a lot of success through the junior years and then moving into senior, we just had a very, very strong group. So at times he, he didn't get the credit that he needed just because there, there at times wasn't as much coaching as, as, as needed to be done for some other teams. Now, I don't want to gloss over this and say that you guys are just rolling and winning everything because in your high school era, there were some really good teams. And I remember one year you guys were in an absolute battle with Mississauga and I think Terrell was the guy on that team. So what do you remember about some of these, whether they were tournaments throughout the year or going to offsa, like just the level of competition in Ontario and some of the, like the, the next level players that you guys would have to battle against? Yeah, there are some great teams. Um, I mean, our grade 12 year for the majority of our group was a year where we barely rolled over. We were 66 and 0. But uh, the grade 11 year for most of us, when we went to Offsa with the first opportunity where we believed that we could win it, there were, you know, a good team out of Ottawa, Glebe, and uh, Mississauga was really strong. Terrell was in his fifth year at that point, and we were still little kids, even though we were grade 11 when you think you're 15 and 16 years old, but we're little boys out there compared to some of the guys on these other teams. 
and it was a battle. We played Mississauga. We were in Barry in the Asa Championship, and um, and it it was a real real test to our group. Um, but we had some tremendous play from Luke Sim, who had come back to playing volleyball. Actually, he took a year off the year before and came back to volleyball in grade 12 and then transitioned to an excellent university and then professional player in Sweden, uh, who's actually now coaching with me at the university of Toronto, but he was a huge help to that team's success. But the, the best teams I actually saw were when we were in grade 10, we went to Asa and at that point, you know, we're not ready to win at that stage, but uh, Glebe had a tremendous team with Rex Fenton and Phil James and Jory Mantha, and they went up against the same Mississauga group with uh, the complete Pac-Man lineup. And there was some really, really great volleyball being played in Ontario high schools throughout that time that I was going through my high school years. Yeah, small world. I, we had uh, Matt Harris on the show recently, and he coached that Glebe team. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. and Alex O'Neill and Terrell were going at each other, not only like offensively through the net, but a little bit of chatter too. Like that was that was a very high level high school match for sure. Yeah, well, there's a. I mean, Terrell was going after it in our final. It was, and he was a man amongst boys. I mean, back then, but Matt Varis just had his number in the final. It was remarkable. Um, Matt was playing left side with, with Garrett and Matt just slammed him like three blocks in a row in one sequence. And Terrell had come flying in. I remember this moment vividly where Matt had got him once or twice. And then later a key moment in one of the sets, Matt got him again on a C ball where Terrell was just flying out of the back row. And it was one of those plays where he had so much momentum that he kind of came under the net. And I guess he was a little frustrated because he came under and just gave Matt this big push just away from the <laughs> net. And, uh, and, you know, most people like maybe Alex O'Neill at that point would, would react a little bit more uh, brashly and be confrontational. But where we were in, in our stature and who we were at that time, we kind of just got a little bit nervous, you know, Matt just, we all just shied away. We were like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> you know, we, we don't want to poke the bear. We're already in his grill. You know, he's got him a few times, but, uh, but yeah, it was a great battle. So that great 11 year was, was fantastic. And it was a huge, a really cool moment for our team. And, and for just going back to Luke Sim is his father was actually on the last also winning men's volleyball program at, uh, at my high school, Birchmount park. So for him to win, uh, in his final year was, it was so cool. Now, because most of you guys have come through the, the crush system, were you talking about winning offso? Like, were you taking that type of goal setting where you're going to say it out loud? You're going to focus on the external, like you were going through high school that year to win offso, or how did you guys talk about goal setting when John May's not around? Yeah. I mean, without John, uh, it just took the leaders of the group to kind of step up. And at that point it was, you know, myself and Garrett, at that point, Michael Meitzen was actually setting with us um, on the team, and I was playing libero for that high school season. And we had a long conversation that was run by Bill McKay, and we talked about what our goals were. And we made these goals early in September. And we had an idea of what our team would be because we thought we were relatively strong going into grade 11. Um, but we knew that, you know, there's a whole age group ahead of us of 
of 18 new athletes who would also be there. And I think every practice we had the same mentality. And in grade 11, we actually lost two matches, I think. We lost in a tournament uh, to Rick Hansen, who had a very strong program at that point. And one other, I can't remember. But those moments, you know, it wasn't a moment of, of doubt. Like you think you lose a match and you're just like, oh, I guess we won't actually do it when we get there. It was actually very, very helpful, I think, for our group. The high school level in the city of Toronto at times isn't as strong as it is provincially, just because there's so many high schools in such a small area that our team was, you know, very, very successful within the city. But having these tournaments, playing some of the teams that would be there in OFSA and and actually losing a match or two, I think it actually carried a lot of weight uh, for how we felt going into OFSA and how urgent we needed to perform when we got in those moments. Nice, nice. And just switching back to club volleyball. So we kind of touched on earlier about how you're climbing through the age groups and, and the, the goal is still the same and the behavior is still the same. So with you guys being such a ball control team, was there ever any urgency? Like when it gets to 17U and 18U and the net goes up and guys are getting more physical, like did your style of play ever have to change or was it always just going to be serving, passing, focus and awareness? Yeah. When we got to 18U, I think you know, a lot of a lot of the athletes are physically changing, and the game was getting more and more physical. We definitely had to add more service pressure to the game we were playing. Uh, so different guys sort of developing and honing in on on jump serving uh, to give us that advantage because we weren't overly physical at blocking. So that was one area of focus that John really. Uh, brought to us moving into our grade 12 year was our service pressure. We knew our defense were strong. We knew our secondary setting as a team uh, was very strong, but our blocking, which for other teams had become sort of the mainstay and main driver of how they were earning points was something that we just weren't necessarily going to be the best at. Um, And that was just because of some athletic limitations. Um, So our serving pressure became a huge focus uh, and really translated into um, earning points for us. And were you guys aware of the outside noise? Like, did you get a sense that in those clutch moments, other teams would just fold up because they're like, oh, here it goes again? Or were their teams just dying to beat you guys? Like, and don't get me wrong, like you guys, I don't think you maybe you did. I don't think you won like every tournament you absolutely played in and won every set or anything. But when it came time to provincials, you guys were going to take it down right every year you've played. So uh, I'm wondering what was the mood when you're around other players? Actually, excuse me. I think there was one year where Garrett and Richard both got hurt in the same year. And I think you guys dropped one, didn't you? We did drop one 17 U. uh, Garrett and Richard both got hurt. And we had a young Reed May who was 14 at that time, come up and play with us. Because uh, we needed a left side, so one year absent, uh, which really fueled the fire going into 18U. But um, the years previous, I, I mean, every tournament has its own story um, and how you get there. But I think when when you've had so much success in the past, you just believe it to happen. We never really focused on the noise of the other teams, and and to be honest, I never really noticed it. And I don't know if that's just because we were just having such a great time with, with each other, um, playing and being successful, but I never heard any background or animosity from other teams who you know, really wanted to beat us. I'm sure they did. Um, 
which I would too. But uh, for us, it was just about having a good time. And we were, we always believed that we would win. Uh, it was, it's pretty remarkable um, what we were able to su- uh, be successful with. And we definitely didn't win every tournament. You are correct. We'd usually drop one, one a season. Um, and that would just fuel the fire again. So the moment that, you know, we thought that we were down or weak, we would add another tool to our game. We would add another skill and then just take it up to the next level. Is that how you guys would regroup is there would never be like a panic moment. There would just be, okay, we need to change our style and then begin with the belief cycle again. Because I remember one year I I must've asked Aaron to do too many questions where he just basically stopped answering my questions and told me I need to go to a practice. And I, to be honest with you, I I was a little disillusioned. So it was Reed's 18 new year and I get there and the net gets put up and like everybody plays short court. When I say everybody like me and Andrew Coker's father, Roman were partners, like everybody in the gym is playing short court. And then you, you kind of play around and hack around and then John gets there and he does like the coach's introduction and takes care of the housekeeping stuff. And then I saw the most intense pepper I think I've ever seen in my life. And then I saw John stand at the baseline and serve underhand balls at two lines of guys. And you guys had to pass like 50 perfect balls in a row. And and that drill kind of progressed and built from there. But uh, I thought it was, it was overly simple, but what I walked away with was everybody was dialed in, but there wasn't like any amazing drills I was going to steal or there wasn't any like cool tactics going on. It was just like everybody was dialed in and everything was intense after short court. Yeah, it's, uh, you're, you're exactly correct. And that's exactly how it went for four or five seasons. And, uh, I'll get back to that question, but funny thing was, you know, John was such a good mental coach for us. And even the types of drills that you're alluding to, you know, passing 50 or a hundred balls perfectly in a row, any ball that goes over the net, any off the net pass, you go back to zero. Uh, it's just these mentally taxing drills of executing the simple skill uh, perfectly or very well when it matters, um, which is something that you continue to strive for, uh, even at the older ages. Um, but I remember trying to steal that drill and I was like, well, John, don't you think it gets boring after a while? And he just, the quickest answer I've ever seen him give was like, well, if you're bored, you're not focused. <laughs> Basically you just got to focus more when you're bored. You can't be dribbling the ball. You can't be dropping the ball. You can't be looking around. You got to focus and then you got to be aware. And then you got to focus again. I was like, man, you're, you're sticking to this culture thing that you've built through drills now. Yeah, exactly. He, he would definitely stick by it. I think we did probably the three same drills, uh, forever. One of them being that passing on the end line. We do a couple where you'd be hitting high balls and, you know, having to avoid a block playing against a defense and you'd have to get a certain number of plus minus. And we would just do this same, same repetitive drill over and over and over again. And I believe it. If I was a coach going there and watching these practices, one, I would be like, uh, you know, who are these athletes and how are they getting better at doing this? And, (laughs) and, And, you know, exactly. And there'd be nothing to take away because you can't teach the type of uh, mental focus and belief that the group has and that type of stuff that John was trying to get through to us. Uh, Funny thing about John though, is, you know, as you saw at the practice you went to, you know, very, very limited technically, 
for, from a coaching standpoint, you know, he didn't, he didn't talk the game a whole lot. He didn't talk about setting systems for me being a setter at that time. He didn't talk about setting systems. He didn't talk about running offense or schemes or block management or these technical aspects. All he talked about was, uh, executing the simple skills and mental focus. And what was the funniest thing for me was I was fortunate enough to make the under, at that time, it was under 21 provincial team um, in my 17U summer. So one of the younger athletes, I think myself, Derek Kuyak and Jory Mantha were the only ones at that age on the team. And we got to the, got through HPC, made the program and then I started working and I was working very closely with TJ, TJ Sanders, uh, obviously, um, setting with the national program now, uh, who was incredibly technical at that age. And we would have video sessions. So there would be video playing of us setting and us moving from different positions. And my footwork was just atrocious. Like I, I could put the ball in the right spot. I could deliver it, but I had no technical prowess of the game. Um, and not to, to bash John May that much, but it just wasn't important to him at that stage. And it's something that I guess we could have honored later. So the provincial team helped me a lot, I think, moving into my university career. But uh, as far as crush in the club system, I mean, I don't think any of that would have been possible without the type of mentoring that people like John and Aaron Cadeau had with that group. Yeah. I, would say, I would say one thing that you mentioned about the practice you went to is you know, that younger crush group was a little different than our crush group, that younger crush group, you know, they were, uh, they were a lot more outgoing, we'll say than, than my group. <laughs> yes. They, they were some fun loving characters. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> Just to add on to your, your technical story there. I remember when I asked Garrett, who has been hand setting on the beach for as long as I can remember, I was like, how did you learn to do that? Like, what were some of the cues you were given as a young kid? And he's just like, I remember my dad telling me when I was really young, just to set the ball with no spin. And I was like, that that's it. Like no approach, no pre-contact contact, post-contact that we talk about in like coaching clinics through the NCCP is just like, no, it's just set the ball with no spin. I was just like, Oh my gosh. Like I couldn't even like fathom what was going on. But like you said, John was so more focused on the mental game and being clutch and closing out and winning versus, Oh, your right foot needs to be here. And then your hands come up, like all the little technical details I think coaches can get lost in, but it's neat to see how performance can still happen, even though you might not have technical skills or it might not look pretty at times, right? Like Grant O'Gorman's a fantastic passer, but that platform, you wouldn't teach that to a 12 year old kid, right? Oh yeah. We don't usually teach the interlocking pinkies type, uh, <laughs> type maneuver, but his platform, you know, he's got those big muscular forearms. So he takes up a lot of space with those big paddles and kind of shuffles it to where he wants it to go. Uh, yeah, no, you wouldn't teach that, but, but that's exactly it. Same with Grant, same with Garrett is, you know, a lot of the drills and a lot of the things we were doing in practice were focused on being competitive and what did it take to win and most of the time and the drills how they were developed is it takes the type of skill you need to execute things simple but but routinely and perfectly and if you get better at those skills it seemed to translate into some of your technique down the road i mean i think garrett's a bit of a special breed and maybe an anomaly for his skill set because his setting and his platform are pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I'm just curious because we, we've talked a lot about crush on this podcast and, uh, and 
you know, the, the joke about the, having a crush crush, but uh, moving forward, I was wondering before coaches just start pumping their players full of confidence and trying to be mini John Mays out there with their coaching style. I was wondering how, how would you guys respond after a loss? Like when you lose a tough one in like an 18 year national final, like how, how are conversations happening there where you just didn't get it done and guys are disappointed? Like, how are you still staying together or what is the messaging when you guys went off off the map there a little bit and, and you had all this belief and preparation and then you just didn't get it done. Yeah. Well, to go with this story, we did lose our 18 U national championship final, which was devastating only because it was the last time that we knew we'd play together as a group. Um, but we were very, we were outmatched and, and the team we played was Winnipeg strike and they were strong where we weren't and they ran a great offense through the middle with uh, Devin Plett setting who at that age he went on to play at Trinity uh, but had some injuries but um, yeah after after a tough loss I mean we would get over it pretty quickly and I think that's just a testament to the group you know there, there was no pointing fingers there was no waving a flag or thinking about what could have we done differently or better or changed it was moving forward and we were very very focused on moving forward immediately we didn't linger we didn't think about situations and key moments we would just move on to the next play and that's the way that we took every match whether it was a final or or pool play and obviously being on one of the best teams in the province and in the country post-secondary was going to be an option for a lot of you guys who wanted to pursue it. Right. And, and again, I think your 18 year roster, everybody who at least wanted to did play post-secondary list, not everybody, but what was your recruiting process? Like, were you looking Ontario only? Did you look across the country? Did you look NCAA? Like how were you approaching your post-secondary studies in volleyball? Uh, yeah. So recruiting was fairly interesting for me at, at that time. I had my heart actually set on, on going to Queens or McMaster who at that time those were the powerhouse schools in the province and and to some degree they still are i mean uh very successful in the last 10 years and i had my eyes set on one of those programs i I also had a lot of focus academically so i wanted to make sure that i had that balance and oddly enough i wound up at uh, the university of toronto you know i i had been recruited uh, decently well by by brenda at queens at the time and and dave at McMaster, who both had fairly large recruiting classes in my year. And and every recruiting visit, it seemed like that was the school for me. I was just so infatuated to have the opportunity to, to go visit these schools and uh, pick the game I wanted to watch when I went and did my campus tours and, and the little details that they would do for you. Um, it seemed like each place was going to be the fit for me. And then shortly down the road, I was getting contacted a lot by the University of Toronto at the time. It was Ed Drakeage and Mike Chumley. And I had known Mike Chumley from uh, some training camps previously when I was a little younger. And um, and he was in my ear a lot about coming to the University of Toronto. And I, for that whole time, I thought, you know, I want to go to a program that's been very successful recently. I want to get into a system that I know I'm going to have opportunities to win OUA championships. Uh, you know, as a, as a young man, I, I thought I, you know, I want to get out of the city. I want to go live on my own and, and do that sort of scene as well. And so I never really considered the University of Toronto to the point that I actually didn't apply until uh, late May, basically the, the end deadline, I think, at that time. 
And um, what sold me on the University of Toronto is, you know, they were fortunate enough to offer me some some scholarship money, which was fantastic. But more so, they offered me the opportunity to to play immediately. The program wasn't as successful as it had been in the past, um, and they were looking for some guys to come in and fill certain positions. And one of those positions happened to be mine. And for me, that that became more and more uh, of what I wanted with my university experience. And what I try to tell a lot of the younger athletes is you need to make a decision that's going to make you feel the best at the end of the day. So for some people, maybe that's having whatever program you choose on the back or on the front of your Jersey. And for other people, maybe that's trying to compete and trying to win and trying to do that with, with a program. And that's a decision I made was I just figured, okay, I'll go to the university of Toronto and I'll have my opportunity to play for five years. And I was fortunate enough to avoid some injuries and play pretty much every single match started every single match for five seasons. And, uh, it was a fantastic experience. Now you got to give me a chumley story about why he's such a strong recruiter. And I remember your age group, like Cam McCracken, who I forget where he played his 18 year. He might've been a storm guy, but he played at St. Mike's and I got to obviously work with him over the years a little bit, just different programs, hilarious guy where he would tell stories about, Chumley would have like four guys in a circle and Cam would be like, you'd still feel like you were the most important guy there, even though he's just recruiting this big group. Cause like you said, you have T's in like a rebuilding and just looking for the best players available and a lot of guys to contribute. Right. So what was your, what was your experience with Chumley? I'm sure it was maybe a little bit more personal or was it as simple as like, there's a lot of guys around and he's still making you feel valued. Yeah, it was, it was uh, incredibly personal with me and, and Chumley actually. Cause at that time, um, you know, I had been, setting with crush and dabbling in playing libero a bit with the provincial team the summer before and thinking about my career and where I wanted to go in the future and what was going to um, set me up best to maybe push for a pro contract or play at the national level. And, and I thought long and hard about making the transition to playing libero at the highest level. And, and Mike basically came to me with an offer to train with me personally and help me develop and, you know, he had sold me because he had worked with athletes, uh, you know, with Toronto Volleyball Club, like Eric Matson, who was a fantastic libero and went off to play at the University of Alberta and then professionally for a number of years. Um, and so we had a good personal bond and Mike would call me, I mean, during the recruiting process, probably two to three times a week, we would chat for 30, 45 minutes about volleyball. And we both, I think, were following international volleyball. So we would just talk and talk. Uh, at lengths. Um, but we had a, we had a very large recruiting class. Uh, we had about seven, I believe first year athletes come in and I think five of us went through the entirety of the program, but it was a big changeover, which was daunting in the sense that you kind of know going into it, we definitely are going to struggle, but at the same time it was exciting because I knew I'd have an opportunity to contribute. Yeah. And how did you find the culture going from crush to U of T. And the reason I ask is Parky and I got into it one time on the beach tour, just talking about, he mentioned the goal was like, Oh, hopefully we can make the playoffs. And I was like, hopefully like, that's not a Garrett May or a John May thing. Usually it's set your goal as high as possible or it shows you didn't believe in yourself. So you guys are leaving this, this culture with people like Garrett and John and the goal setting and the external focus and going to U of T. So 
how did you find navigating that situation on your own? Because obviously it's a different group with a totally different background and, and different experience in our sport. So how did you find leaving one high performance program and entering another? Yeah, I think that's the really interesting part about university volleyball is you're taking all these athletes from all these different experiences at the, at the youth level. Um, and for me, I always had very high goals. And uh, even if we didn't have the success that maybe I thought we could have achieved with the university of Toronto, it was still my goal. Um, I think you're, you go into every match, you go into every season thinking I'm going to compete for whatever the championship is, whatever the title is. And I'm going to try to win every match to the point that, uh, I had a bit of a run in with John Barrett on one occasion where we were shooting a, uh, promotional video for the university of Toronto going into my third season and you know, a simple video inside of the gym. They asked the athletes a few questions. Where do you see the team going this year? And, you know, my answer was, you know, competing on a daily basis and finding our way into the final four and, and competing for an Ontario championship. Um, and, and after that video came out, I had a long, long meeting with, with John Barrett in his office about goal setting and, and how we're establishing that with our team and different mentalities, which I, I do appreciate. And I think when you have a number of guys from a number of backgrounds, you know, it's probably best to focus on the small, the small goals um, and sort of building up to something bigger, but just in the way that I had been brought up through the club system in the back of my mind was always the end goal. Now, I'm curious, looking back now that you've been through that experience, why is it not as simple as saying these are going to be our goals and these are the things we're going to build to? Like using your crush example or I'm good friends with Alex Poldma and the Waterloo guys, they kind of banded together and said, like, we don't have a lot of Team Ontario guys. We don't have this, but we're going to work hard and we're going to find like a competitive advantage where with, with or even what Garrett did at Western in that last year when John maybe came a part of the coaching staff and they finally got over the edge and took a second at nationals. Like for you, why wasn't it as simple as getting the room's attention and get everybody to buy in? Like, was it just their perception or was it the, the perception of the league that all oh, Mac or Queens or whoever is just too strong? Like why was it kind of an uphill battle to get people to buy in and say that like, no, we're, we're good enough. We can get it done here versus maybe what they thought of their own skill or what they thought of U of T at the time. Right. Uh, it's tough to say. I think the first thing that you need to find when you get to the university level is a team identity. And fortunate for our group, we had such a young class coming in and so many players. We may have lost a bit of whatever that previous year's team identity was in culture. And most of the successful programs that have great turnover of athletes, uh, the new athletes coming in sort of follow whatever that culture was established. And it doesn't have to be necessarily the most positive or the, <laughs> the most, uh, uh, I guess, democratic culture, but it's something just to identify you as a group. I remember talking to Garrett about, you know, what was going on at Western and what they were doing and how that team operated. And I would just think to myself like, wow, that's amazing that you guys, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you, <laughs> I don't know if I should share that story. Uh, anyways, uh, you know, his team culture was a lot different than what was happening at the University of Toronto, but they were all bought into it, uh, every single athlete. And, and that's what our group was struggling with for, for a while was we were so young and so pooled together that 
uh, we needed to find what our identity was. I think the perception of the league is a big one. When you come into the OUA, you always, you know, you've watched OUA volleyball previously. You know who the athletes are. You know what teams are historically successful. And I think that can definitely play in your mind. You know, even if you've had success at the younger level, it doesn't matter now. It's everyone's starting from a blank slate uh, and these programs have a reputation and sometimes those programs pull them through much like what I felt like we had with crush was we would be able to, to just gather the momentum that we needed to finish games off. And some of these teams just ended up doing that. And I remember one season with U of T, we had lost seven five-set matches in the season, which is just devastating. And is the difference between, you know, getting into a deeper playoff run or being out of the playoffs. And you need to have a result or two to go your way to build some of that belief. And we just didn't get a couple of the bounces. And sometimes that's just how it goes. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think that's where goal setting gets a little tricky is you you need some evidence or something to really, really anchor to during the process. Like if people want to go back and listen to Garrett's episode, he talked about in his first year when they, they had a big team meeting about goals. He was the only guy who said anything about winning nationals. Like there wasn't even all a lot of guys radar. So it is an interesting thing about how your own perception and experience, right? Like where some people might say, Oh, I want to make quarterfinals. And then you take a fifth and it's kind of like, Oh, I'm still disappointed, but we reached our goal. Right. Versus it can be intimidating or even frightening to say, well, I want to win the tournament. And then you don't, and then you're kind of stuck with the disappointment. Right. So it's, it's not an easy answer. And it's something I'm obviously fascinated about and love talking about with on the show, because I think that's, there's yeah. no right answer to do it. And then there's lots of different ways to approach it. I'm just always fascinated that uh, not everybody's comfortable saying, I want to, I want to win. Right. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of vulnerable uh, vulnerability in putting yourself out there to that degree saying, you know, I'm going to do what it takes. And I, I, I believe that we can get to a certain level and being committed to that wholeheartedly. And if the results don't happen, they don't happen. But some people, you know, they can't deal with that type of pressure, whether it's putting it on themselves or putting it on others. Or, or worse, they're comfortable saying it out loud, but then their actions don't match. Like I, I work with some college level athletes who wanted to win provincials, but didn't go to bed on time, were maybe doing some stuff off court that wasn't helping, their diet wasn't right. Like little things like that, where it's easy to say, well, I'm going to win provincials, but there, there's, there's a cost to that goal. And you got to do a lot to be, even be in the conversation, right? Exactly. Well, going through your university career, I'm wondering how did you approach it as, as an athlete? Cause you mentioned you were a provincial team of libero, but you were setting a club and, and whether Chumley remembers this or not, I remember standing and talking to you at the St. Mike's high school tournament and he made a joke that he doesn't recruit five, 10 setters. And that's where you said, well, I'm a libero. And the conversation kind of went from there, but you did set at the university level and you did do a heck of a job. So your own identity, were you set on being a libero or would you always, or did you want to set at the, the level or were you dialed in to be a libero? Like which one was it for you and how, how was it switching back and forth over your five years? Uh, yeah. In, in my first year I was, I was set on, you know, just becoming as good as I could at, at the libero position with goals uh, beyond the university of Toronto. And then I was fortunate enough to go to the junior national team camp and, and get some experience there um, with playing libero. And then as our team, you know, struggled and we didn't have the success that we were having or I was having previously at the club and high school level. 
uh, it became a very, very frustrating position. And as any libero would know, it's, it's a very unforgiving position. You're kind of on an island. Now there's two liberos, actually. So now you, you can actually get subbed out and not feel like you're alone. But when I was going through it, you know, you're out there alone. You've got one to two jobs to do. And if one isn't going so well, it's pretty blatant that you're having a bad day and there's just nowhere to hide. And that was okay for me because I can deal with my own pressure and performance and what I expect from myself. What I struggled with at the libero position was finding more ways that I could impact the game. And our team wasn't the most dynamic at the time at the University of Toronto. And I felt like I could contribute more in the setting role than playing libero. So in my second season, I was playing still libero full time, but that was becoming more and more frustrating uh, going through that season until I made a switch halfway through that year uh, to playing uh, setter full time, which was fantastic. And I never looked back. Um, and I regained a lot of the joy that I had just setting because there's so many little avenues that you can influence the game in that position. You're really just the quarterback of the team. In my fourth year, we had Alexa Miladonovic uh, come into our program, and that was uh, fairly exciting. Uh, it all happened so late, and Alexa and I are, are good friends, and we go back and talk about it because at the time, he had been setting at Ryerson University and, and doing quite well, and he had graduated from his uh, program uh, early and was actually planning to go down to the States to IPFW. And for whatever reason, in August of the sum of that summer, you know, things had sort of fallen through. And then he accepted an offer to come to the University of Toronto because he was doing his uh, doctorate in pharmacy. And he messaged me about coming. And at that point, I was so set on setting that I was like, OK, you know, you can come, but I'm probably not going to play libero like I'm going to still set. And, um, and in hindsight, I wish I had known he was coming to the program ahead of time and I would have made a transition back because I think it would have been more beneficial to have us both on the court at the same time, um, and have sort of a totality of your best athletes on the court at the same time, but that just wasn't where my head was. And so when Alexa came, it became a new battle for me, uh, and for him to kind of get better together and we look back on it because when he came in we both didn't like each other very much because we were just both competitive and I was in his way and he was in my way of of playing and contributing to the team and this was my group and he was coming in it was a lot of animosity but we both became a lot better because of it and Alex obviously developed and the following year he took a year off um, because he had years of eligibility left. I finished my fifth year of school. He came back with Stefan Ristick, uh, and they had a great year uh, making the playoffs with the University of Toronto. And then he went off to play pro for a year. And so although we weren't friends during that, that brief bit of time, it actually brought us closer in the end, uh, which is a really, really interesting experience. The hardest part was in fourth year when uh, John Barrett was having us 
or having me go back and forth. So, you know, there would be a game here or there where I would play libero and Alexa would set, or if, <laughs> if John Barrett was upset with Alexa for numerous of reasons, uh, then <laughs> I would, I would probably be setting and, uh, and Alexa would be off, but I got, I got stuck in between playing both roles. And I would say overall, my, my play suffered mostly in, in the libero end. Uh, it's really hard when you're not getting the types of reps you need to get at the university level to just go back into serve reception against these great university athletes. But a really interesting year having Alexa come into the program. Yeah, you mentioned the challenge of a libero and not having like the outlet to, to maybe do some of the physical skills in our sport, like get a block or earn a point or do, or do something, right? So how would you prepare for games? Like, were you going in knowing that you had to be flawless? Like, how would you stay balanced and ready to go? Because I think in your era, like the service receive was a big emphasis, right? So maybe you were feeling the need to take more court or help out certain outside hitters. Like, how are you dealing with the stress that came with that position at that program at the time? Yeah, exactly. Um, so basically what my position would be would would be to take as much court as I could and shrinking the zones of any uh, of my left sides who are passing beside me as much as I can. And uh, John, John at that point, John Barrett was coaching and um, he gave me sort of free reign. You know, anything that I could get my hands on or move in front of or take or push people out of the way he was okay with that. And, um, I always had a confidence and, uh, sorry, a, a good level of confidence in myself that as long as I could get my feet to the ball, I would put it in a, in a positive position, uh, for us. So it was actually really empowering to have John Barrett on my side in that, because as a libero, it's easy to get stuck in your lane, you know, especially if you're in a service reception passing out of position one, if you're not aggressive enough to push, you know, your service receivers over towards the left side where you can take more court and shrink their zone, you can kind of get lost in the shuffle. And I really took it to heart as far as being sort of the floor general in that position. And I think as a libero, you kind of have to be that, that voice, that motivation, that energy, and that just comes with the position. And I was happy to do it. And along the same lines, when you were setting what's some advice you can give to some smaller setters? Cause I think they get labeled that, Oh, you're too small to play at the next level. Like you obviously did it. And, and outside of delivering a hittable ball, like what are some little things a, an undersized setter can do so you can compete at that level? I, I was fortunate enough to, uh, fortunate enough to have pretty decent blocking technique, albeit with whatever physicality I was able to muster. But, uh, but as a smaller setter, you kind of have to play within your skills. And for a smaller setter, you have to execute the little things well. You need to be the best high ball management setter, bump setter, setting out a transition, setting the bad balls better than someone who's bigger than you. And that's what I would try to do and try to make apparent on a daily basis in practice, even when Alexa was with us. Um, and there's a great comparison because Alexa's probably six, four and came in and, and those were the skills that I could deliver was, um, I could set hittable balls in transition and in rhythm, but then I knew that I would be better at defense and I would be better at setting high balls than whoever came against me. And you just had to pick those skills. Um, and as a young setter, I think don't get discouraged by, by your height. There's so much to be said for, 
uh, placing and understanding the game and delivering balls to your attackers in zones um, that make them successful. Um, at the highest level, you know, size will become a bit of a factor in blocking, but there are some fantastic small setters in the world. I mean, William Harona in Brazil has got to be 5'8", 5'7", I don't know. Um, and he's bump setting 30s from the back line and, and just doing amazing things. But, but yeah, so the, the biggest takeaway I would say is pick the skills that you're going to excel at within your limitations. And if your limitations are physically because you're not playing above the net super high, then you need to pick the soft skills that you're going to excel at. Bump setting, high balls, setting transition, being great at defense. Now, have you and Alexa ever talked this out? And the reason I ask is you, you brought it up earlier that John May would manipulate practice and have guys going at each other. Maybe it was against the score. And we've had some Trinity middles on here where Benjo's making them grind it out and they're going to fight in every drill and they're always going to somehow be matched together in every rotation and just little things like that where like the the iron sharpens iron theory, right? So you, you were obviously comparing yourself and it was pushing you to make you get better. But was that ever openly discussed or was that just something you being a competitor that really drove you yeah we we actually discussed it um i mean during the time we were playing with each other we didn't discuss it much maybe we would discuss it after uh you know we had a couple sodas inside of us but uh you know when we left we would talk about the battles because every day we would just go at each other obviously when you're setting you're always on the opposite side of the court and it's pretty apparent at the university level that you're going to have sort of your starting six and then your uh, substitute or your offside. Different guys rotating in to look at different lineups and different looks. And it just became incredibly competitive between the two of us because it didn't matter what side of the net we were on, whether we were rotating in with the starting six or with the opposite side. You just wanted to win so that it's very apparent that you know, I was beating him personally <laughs> and that's, and that's, the, and that's the same way I'm sure he felt too was, you know, a win for his team was a win against me. And I think that that's great. I think once you have teams that are deeper in skill and can compete with each other individually in their positions, your team is going to grow this past year with the university of Toronto, you know, we had some great success and it was really too bad about how everything was shut down due to COVID-19 at the national championship. But it was one of the years where we had a very deep roster and our starting six and our offside set would have these great battles and it would go back and forth guys yelling at each other, giving it to them. And then after the drill, nothing. That's just what it was. And that was the same when we were playing and that's the same across the board with a lot of the university athletes that I've been friends with is those experiences. And they're so fun. I mean, you can endlessly talk about the ways that you, you know, chirp guys and threw guys down, even if they're on your team at practice, those are the times that you remember most once you leave. Now, is that something that uh, Coach Barrett is encouraging? Because if anyone was lucky enough to see him play or the way he carries himself, that guy is intense. That guy's a competitor. Like, is that something that he's able to bring and instill in younger athletes? 
So he will instill the intensity. And I think John does a very effective job at picking personalities. Um, Obviously on some or on each team, you're going to have people with different personalities, people who respond to the harsh, brash coaching, people who need it a little softer. And um, for John, he does a good job at reeling guys in if they're going off the rails emotionally. There are guys who can handle that, so they can take it, they can be emotional. And when I mean emotional, I mean kind of in an aggressive uh, sense. And then they can take that and, and harness it and put it into positive contacts. And then there's guys who get so emotionally wrapped up that they fold. And John did a great job of sort of managing that in our group this past season and which guys he can kind of allow a little bit more freedom. And I remember in my first year of coaching with the team, um, Will Colucci, who you know very well, um, was sort of that guy on the team. And he was very successful that season on the right side, but he would just go off. And that was just the role that he played was he was very emotional. He's very brash and John let him take it. And John would not fuel the fire, but he wouldn't reel it back. Whereas other guys, some of our left side attackers, some of our more skill-based players, he would have to reel it back. And it's because it would affect your play. And I think as an athlete, you know, a lot of the time in younger ages, people want to get so fired up and so amped up. And they think that that's going to transition to, you know, a powerful attack or something. And, but it becomes, you know, you're, you're out of control a lot of the time. And so John did a fantastic job at sort of picking his spots with the athletes, who to poke and who to prod. But it's, it's funny to hear John talk about calmness now because he's so, holistic and and uh into meditation and belief practices and breathing control and it's fantastic and that's where his life has taken him but you have all these fantastic john barrett stories from before um of him just you know i can only imagine terrorizing people on the other side of the net (laughs) um with his physicality so it's it's a really funny dynamic yeah, I I don't know him well enough to say, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say when when John Barrett was one of the best players in the CIS and on our national team, he was not meditating before practice from what I've heard. <laughs> no, I think that was uh, a few years removed. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you find the transition of going from a captain on the team and a leader and a guy in the room to a coach? Because I think there, there's some people who think they're more the same than they are different. And there's people who think that there's a divide. So how have you found your own little niche within the coaching staff that John's built and then your role? Because you're not one of the guys, but as an assistant coach, sometimes that role is to be one of the guys and then giving feedback and kind of pushing the intensity. Like how have you found your place in, in the team dynamic at U of T? Uh, great question. Um, you know, the first couple of years, cause I've been coaching now at the university program for this will be my sixth year. Uh, if we have a program this year, um, you know, the first two years where you're so closely removed and I had just played with these athletes, um, and by playing, I mean, there's so much and so much that you learn from each of these guys. Cause you're spending so much time with them, you know, your Saturday nights, wherever you're going out, you're going out with these guys and it's hard to brush that off. Um, you know, I was fortunate that I'd always been a leader of that group. 
And so my voice, I feel, is always respected. Um, so my first couple years was uh, very calm, trying to organize and, and help with John from a strategic perspective. And then I actually was very, very close with, with Alexa and with our liberos and having good dialogue as far as game planning, executing what's happening on the other side, what do we see together and working together uh, to structure a game plan. So that season where Alexa and I were working together uh, was fantastic. And I think that role for me was probably perfect at that time because I was too young to take any sort of ownership for the group because we were too close. And then as time wore on, you know, you start coaching athletes who you had never played with. And now no one, I no one on the roster I played with because everyone is, is so young and I can so, sort of grow as a coach into a little bit more uh, of a presence and an authoritative in a sense when needed. Um, now that's not necessarily my coaching style because I still feel a, a large level of attachment to the athletes and what they're going through and, and how my experience was at the university that I try to use that to my advantage in a way in the way I'm talking to you right now is the way I coach. I, I don't yell. I don't get loud. Um, I, if there's something to be said, I'm not someone to blow a whistle and stop a drill. I'm very oftentimes letting them work it out. Even if a drill isn't going well, I think there's a lot of strength to people figuring out how to get out of that rut. And I'm not going to save them by blowing a whistle. Um, and when I speak to them, I speak to them very calmly, um, because ultimately the athletes are in control and I learned to accept that in coaching is, you know, as I think John may used to say, you know, you can, uh, take a rhinoceros to water, but you can't make it drink. You know, it's a rhinoceros. It's going to choose what it wants to do. And so that's the message I instill to these athletes is, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say we're not doing well. Hey, this drill isn't going well. Hey, uh, you got to pass better. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. back. I'll, I'll share an Ed Drakeage story about that after I'll write it down. So I remember, uh, but yeah, like I can point out the obvious things. Hey, we need to focus more. Hey, you have to pass here and do that. But, but these athletes know that like they're, they're exceptional athletes. It's not like they don't know that the drill's not going well. And nine times out of 10, it's, it's a mental lapse in focus. So they don't need me to yell at them again to reiterate the things that they already know. So I bring them in and, and at those moments, it's the times where we can share and talk about what do you want to take away from today? And how is that going to help us with our goals in the future? And those are my sound bites in practice. Now that's how I, I guess, take some leadership with the group that we have. Um, at, at the University of Toronto, we were really fortunate. We had a, you know, just a tremendous group of, of young men and they made it so fun for myself and Aiden Haslett and Luke Sim, who's, who's all helping John coach the program that it became effortless, uh, for us in practice to have sort of that, uh, that relationship between athlete and coach where you're, you're kind of buddy, buddy, but there's always that line when, when it's time to turn it on. Uh, funny story about coaching philosophy. So in my in my first year, we were at the University of Toronto. We had Ed Drake, Ed Drake is as our head coach, um, who is probably one of the best technical minds in volleyball. 
that's just his mind is working so fast that he can't keep up with it. And he probably, that's why he can't communicate it as well as he, he should, <laughs> but he's, he's so incredibly technically smart, uh, that we would, he would call these timeouts and he would just, uh, explode, but explode into nothingness, which is the type of coaching I was just talking about. And we, a lot of the older guys who were there at the time, we share this story where we're losing to Waterloo. And at that time, Waterloo's a, you know, very strong program and we're perennially in the final four. And we were, you know, first year athletes just trying to stay afloat. And, uh, <laughs> so he's pacing, we're sitting down at the bench, he's pacing back and forth and he can't find words to say. And Chumley's looking at him like, what are you going to tell the guys? And we're all like, waiting for Ed to yell at us. Uh, <laughs> and he explodes into this meaningless rant where he just goes, uh, hitters, you, you got to hit the ball, set setters, set the ball and <laughs> passers pass the ball. And then he just storms off. And that, that was it. That was the whole, the whole pep talk, no game plan, no strategic change, just telling us, you know, to be better. Thank you, Ed. Uh, and we walked back out on the court and did very similar to how we were doing before. But <laughs> I think that just supports why I'm not that style of coach now, I guess. It's, it didn't work for me, so that's how I'm going to take it. Well, it is cool to hear, well, not only to get it to like work with you as you're kind of growing up and all the stuff you did for the beach crew and just being close to you for all those years that you have found a way to have your own voice. Cause I think as young coaches, we get influenced by people we respect and, and with the coaching staff at U of T with like coaches like John and Dave McAllister that are very strong personalities and they're going to get after guys if they're not bringing effort. I'm happy to hear that you haven't been influenced and think that's how you have to coach that you have a way of doing things. Aiden has a way of doing things. Luke has a way of doing things. So it's kind of cool that John has a system and things that he believes in, but he doesn't think that you have to be a second version of him when you're running practice. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think we, you know, this past season, we actually had sort of the perfect storm of uh, coaching and to have that many coaches, you know, consistently at practice was tremendously helpful to the program, but that's exactly it is, you know, John and Dave are, you know, very outspoken. Um, and then my sort of role would be to, you know, fill in a brief snippet to John to let him know what's happening or what to tell the guys about one specific key. And at times I would be also working with our setters or liberos directly and just pulling them aside and giving a brief snippet and then moving on and let John and, and Dave uh, take ownership of the bigger picture stuff. And we had a great group. Um, I think it's important as a, as a coach and specifically a young coach to sort of find a role that you're going to fit in. And, uh, as long as you're okay with that, then you'll be a great assistant coach. If you're not okay with that, well, maybe you're more cut out to try and be a head coach and you probably have to pick somewhere else to do that. One other thing that you've been able to accomplish just as a player, because you're a guy who took your academics very seriously and want, knew what you wanted to do for career. So you obviously didn't go overseas and play pro, but you did continue to play and have played in the one volleyball league or the Canadian volleyball league, excuse me, whatever they were going to be called this year, if we were lucky enough to have it. But how have you found that level to kind of still give you an outlet to be a competitor and still play at the highest level, even though, like I said, like you chose your career path and, and didn't want to, you know, go play overseas or do all that stuff. Right. Yeah, in the in the waking uh, time of finishing up my fifth year of school, I was looking into 
you know, an agent and contracts and overseas, which I think a lot of young athletes are doing now more and more recently, which is fantastic for Canadian volleyball. Um, and I ended up getting into my physical therapy master's program at the university of Toronto and that just sort of took over. So when one volleyball was being developed, you know, I was just like, wow, what a fantastic opportunity. I actually didn't play in the first iteration of it. Um, because I was completing my master's at the time and was just couldn't find the time to do it. And then I played the season after and it was fantastic. Uh, it was so fun just to get back out there and to play at a high level and to see what, uh, you know, Jackie and Jalon is, is putting together and, and trying to do and trying to develop, uh, in Ontario and now, you know, into Calgary and hopefully across Canada, uh, later on is, it's just so fun. I think there's a lot of talented athletes who are looking for an outlet once they finish university or finish playing pro. Cause a lot of guys who go overseas, you know, who aren't fortunate enough to make the national program, you know, they may only play one, two, three seasons and then they come back. And I think a lot of those athletes still have a lot to give and they would like to, and a league like that just offers so much opportunity for them. Um, for me, it was just, it was, it was fun. It was fun to be a competitive, you know, I played on a team that had very limited success all season and then somehow ended up winning the championship. Um, and it was just a blast and I got to play with Alexa again, which was, which was great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you've told some good stories already, but one tradition we're building on the show is just to end with a, a funny story. So we've got to learn about your career and follow through your process. I was hoping you could give us one more story where volleyball's just provided the backdrop for something hilarious to happen because no matter what level you play at, something funny is going to happen in our sport. So I was hoping you could tell us one more to give us a laugh before we let you go. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I might tell two um, and I'll just tell one for Aaron Cadeau if he's listening because uh, he was such an inspiration to me uh, growing up and to all of our group at that time. We were playing in a, I believe, a 17 and under tournament, and we were probably 15 and under playing a year or two up. And we struggled, and we weren't playing well, and we had lost two matches, which was unlike us. And Aaron, if anyone who's listening to this podcast, they know Aaron is the most mellow and calm and and absolutely loving uh, human around. And you could see him just steaming after the match. And it was just like, Aaron, what's up? Like, what's going on? And our team and how I explained before, you know, we had basically moved on. Yeah, we lost the match, but we'd moved on to the next match. <laughs> and he looks at all of us and he's like, you guys are young boys. And we're like, okay, <laughs> you guys, you guys, uh, you guys got, you guys, you guys got hair on your balls now. <laughs> and we're like, what? Where, where is this going? And he's just like, he, he doesn't really know what to say. He's like, grow some effing gonads. <laughs> and then just storm, storms off. And, uh, and that was it. And, uh, and that carried a lot of weight with our team. That was like a little bit of a mantra for the rest of the season. You just look at each other. We were struggling with like, grow some acting gonads. <laughs> it was awesome. And, and I, sometimes I share that story with Aaron whenever I see him at the beach and, uh, Oh, it's great. Um, 
I, I have a lot of stories with the beach crew with you, some of which I'm not going to share. So we won't dive into that. But if anyone's listening, who's younger, who wants a summer job, those were the best summers of my life. I can't argue. And I'm sure Josh, you would say the same. Um, just so much fun being around that group that we had during those times. I can't believe we got paid for the type of stuff we got to do. It was, really <laughs> it was, it was just a blast. Um, I have one OUA story I'll share, which um, was a, a funny situation that ended up just getting really, really heated and escalated. We were, we were in our second year or my second year at the university of Toronto. Uh, and I had been named captain for that season, which was a, a tremendous honor. And, and to be so young to do that, you know, I, I took a lot of, um, pride in it. And so we're getting into one of our early regular season matches against, uh, McMaster, who was just really, really good that year. They had TJ Sanders who had actually came back to play university. They had, Jeremy Bromveld, Kevin Stevens, they had a young Jory Mantha. I mean, they were primed for definitely an OUA championship, if not national championship run that year. And we're in warm up. And at that time, they weren't doing what they do now, which is the 5555 warm up, which is way too long, but we won't get into that. Anyways, they were doing their serve and pass warm up, where both teams are serving on opposite sides. And, uh, the backup setter for uh, McMaster, I think it was Ian Cooper was his name, but I'd have to fact check that. Uh, who's pretty tall. He's probably six, six or six, seven. Uh, and he went up to set. And when he jumps, I mean, his, his head is over the net. Like he's way up there. And one of our rookie athletes was spin serving at the same time and just, just hit him just square in the side of the head. And that became a bit of a scene on the end line that Dave Preston got into it and Ian Cooper, the setter got into it with this athlete. I came under the net because I felt like I was the captain and I had to, you know, protect this younger athlete. Um, and it became a battle and it was the first time in my career with the university of Toronto where I actually felt like, you know, we had something behind our team, which, which Garrett would explain to me with the Western guys where it's like, we just want to, <laughs> for lack of better words, just fight these other teams all the time. And my university of Toronto team, we were just so nice and pleasant and we never really had that animosity. And then we just took that into the match and we played the best match we played all year. Even though we lost, we lost in five sets to a, to a very, very talented team. And I remember after the match, uh, trying to apologize to Dave Preston uh, because I respected him so much and, uh, and he didn't want it. And then thankfully he forgot about that. And now, you know, we laugh about things at coaching conferences, but, uh, but that was, that was probably the, my um, shining moment, I guess, as a captain with the program. That's a, that's a good moment to come together as a team. Cause I'm thinking Mac over the years, there's been some big dudes on that roster. <laughs> Yeah, we were, we were, we were definitely outmatched. Um, there was a, you know, very strong, I would say UFT, you know, we've got some very educated people. So we've got some strong verbal game. Um, but from a physical standpoint, you know, we knew, we knew where we were going to draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, this has been awesome, man. I, I'm sorry that I had to start a podcast so you and I could catch up, but it's great to hear everything you've been up to and everything you got going on. And best of luck, obviously, with your physio career and your coaching career. And just thanks for everything you've done for our sport and, and sharing the, the journey with us today. Thanks, Josh. Uh, happy to hear from you. All the best.